0: Celebrating the fourth Sunday of Lent, why we wear rose, the admixture of white and violet, this anticipation of the solemn celebrations to come, it's interesting to reflect on what day within, this, within the season of Lent it's placed. And it's pretty much at the halfway mark. Thursday, we reached halfway through Lent, which is significant. Because I think by a lot of times, including myself, At this time, we're just simply tired of Lent, and we've just reached halfway. And a lot of times, whenever we're halfway, you know, Wednesday of the week, it's called hump day. We've just reached the hump. It seems like we've got all this time behind us. We've got all this time in front of us. The church in the middle of the hump day, so to speak, of Lent tells us to rejoice, tells us to rejoice. And the church has to tell us to rejoice because the church knows very well that the sin of our time is acedia, is acedia. What is the sin of acedia? Acedia is not just simply the sin of sloth, right? We know like seven deadly sins, a lot of times we say sloth is one of these sins. But it's more probably called acedia. Sloth can just be an effect of acedia. What this sin is, is a hatred of the divine good in man a hatred of the divine call to holiness that god gives every man this is the sin of our time it's the sin of our time but at the same time because it's the sin of our time it shows that we have a culture that is incapable of hoping. because as we heard in the gospel unless you look at the serpent as the egyptians had to look at the serpent and so be raised Uh, from their sickness. So we have to look at the Son of Man crucified so that we might be raised from the dead, so that we can rise from our own sinfulness. And so the most certain fact of life is that we have been bitten by the serpent. The most certain fact of life is that we have encountered death and that all man is deigned to die. Every man is going to die. It's the most certain fact of life. But our culture of Assyria spits in the face of that fact. And so because we reject God's call to take up our cross and follow him, because we hate that call, we hate that God has come into our lives and said the one way to salvation is the narrow road of the cross. We say, nope, there's got to be another way to joy. There's got to be another way to salvation. And so what do we do as a culture? What do we do as a culture? because we cannot remain in despair, cannot simply say, oh, well, I'm not gonna follow God, so I'm just gonna remain in despair. What the culture does, and why acedia is the sin of our time, is that the culture builds a superficial cult of youthfulness, a superficial cult of youthfulness, where we idolize the appearance of youth, we idolize fitness, we idolize makeup, we idolize Snapchat filters, we idolize this appearance of youth, because with youth comes hope. With youth comes hope. Whenever we see a young person, we are immediately attracted to that young person. Whenever we see an attractive person, we are immediately attracted to that person. Why? Because with the attraction, with the youth, there's all this uh, there's all this room for possibility all this room for natural hope. But ultimately, because we have been bitten by the serpent, because all man is destined to die, that hope, if it's just left in the natural sphere, is left to die. That hope will be left to do. And so while the world tries to build up this superficial cult of youthfulness so that the world can kind of regain some sense of hope, and we being in the world and sometimes of the world participate in this cult we try to simulate hope but whenever we do that we pump up our despair we pump up how much we are true, truly capable of hoping acedia is the sin of our time and acedia is either manifested in sloth and just saying you know what i'm not going to pray and i'm not going to do work either because I know that God is calling me to holiness, and I don't think that I can respond to it. But oftentimes, in America, it's manifested in busybodiness. I know that God is calling me to be a saint. But you know what? I'd rather spend my time just simply being productive. I'd rather spend my time getting things done. But the state of my soul and bearing eternal fruit and growing of the virtues can be done away with. Because I have a whole world that's going to affirm how productive I can be, and how much money I can make, and how much fruit I can bear, even though it may not be eternal fruit. This is all the sin of acedia, and it's manifested in so many other ways, as in gossip. We gossip just so as to pass the time. We speak ill of those who challenge us to be holy. Because they're holy roly or because we hate that God has called us to that kind of holiness. We hate that we're going to have to look like that if God is calling us to holiness. Ascedia has become the sin of our time, but ascedia is not the last word. Unlike some some of the, the, the vices work differently, right? If someone is struggling with lust and they're in temptation, they're in the room, they're struggling with lust. What that person needs to do is flee from it. Just get away. Get outside. You know, let let the wind touch your face. Come back, snap back into reality. But the way that acedia works is that whenever we're approached with it and it attacks us, if we try to run away from it, acedia is like a bully. It comes after us time and time again. And so what we need to do is stop and to simply set our gaze on the Lord and look again to him because he alone is our hope. As we heard in the gospel, that we fix our eyes on the serpent who's lifted up in the desert. We fix our eyes on Christ crucified. And we notice the beauty of hope and what hopeful people look like. Because the one who has real hope has an eternal youth. They have the very youthfulness of God. G.K. Chesterton talks about how though God is eternal, he is younger than all else because as a a child might ask their father to throw them up in the air again and again and again and again. So God says to the sun, rise again. And he says tomorrow, rise again. And he says to the moon, come out again. and And to the moon, come out again. And so God has this eternal youthfulness to him because what comes with age, how someone ages, not just physically in the sense, but the youthfulness that we're attracted to, a, this age being despair, is disappointment. And the, the, the promise of hope cannot disappoint because the promise of hope rests upon the promise of God who cannot lie and who cannot disappoint. With real Christian hope comes an eternal youthfulness because where that youth comes from is God himself who's closer to us than we are to our very selves. Whenever I was in Brobridge there was this lady named Miss Lorraine, and Miss Lorraine has, uh, has passed since. But she would always come to the old-timers' mass, the 7 o'clock mass. And Miss Lorraine was just as old as everybody in the nursing home. Um, and a lot of these families in the nursing home, we know, sadly, uh, have no family to take care of them. That's why they're in the nursing home. And so physically old, but also mentally and just spiritually old. Disappointed. The key was that after we celebrated the 7 a.m. mass, you had to, whenever you walked back through the church, you had to avoid the back left cry room because that's where Miss Lorraine was. And you were gonna be conversation-trapped by Miss Lorraine for 45 minutes until the 8.30, uh, until 8.30 confessions for 9 o'clock mass. And the, what she would talk to you about was how the people. I mean, she wasn't, she wasn't just like, like um, uh, another iteration of Fox News, you know, she wasn't just like complaining all the time. But she was talking about like how the world, what's wrong with the world right now as far as from the church's eyes, how young people need to be, and, and, and just she's very involved with the world, but involved with the world in a way because she was very holy and she prayed very much. She had this sense of youthfulness and energy well into her late 80s because she was so concerned with the salvation of the world. A lot of times when we think of supernatural hope, we think that God is just simply calling us to sit and just wait for him to come again and that I can't be involved in the affairs of the world at all. And that's nonsense. The saints of this world have been the most active ones. Look at Mother Teresa. Was she without supernatural hope? She wasn't. But because she was with supernatural hope, she also knew that she could hope for the whole world, because she knew that hope did not disappoint. And so she could feed the poor. I mean, so she could feed the hungry and and give to the poor. She was able to do these things because she knew that if God wanted to save her, and that was possible, then it was certainly possible for the whole world. And so what supernatural does, supernatural hope does, is that it infuses and alivens our natural hope that we so much crave and desire whenever we participate in the superficial cult of youthfulness. What supernatural hope does is that it gives us this amount of youth and vigor for the Lord's will to where it makes us fully alive in this world because we can believe in the next. But then, supernatural hope as well does a lot of different things practically, right? It makes us relaxed and disciplined. Because, it, because we know that it will not waver. So often, whenever we have hopes in this world, they're always coupled with a great amount of anxiety and fear because we know how fickle those hopes are. But the character of supernatural hope is that we're always relaxed, but we're always disciplined as well because there's a big difference between hope and presumption. Hope knows that heaven awaits, but I do have something to fear. Heaven awaits, but presumption says heaven awaits, and it's already here, so I'm going to do what I want. Hope says heaven awaits, and it is not yet here, and I fear the possibility of losing it. I fear the possibility of sin. Fear of the Lord always accompanies hope, and so is relaxed and disciplined. It is adaptable and ready. Hope always trusts in the providence of God. As St. Augustine says, that we entrust the past to God's mercy, the present to his charity to his grace and the future to his providence. Because hope has God as it's end, then we also know that hope has God as its means. That hope is always adaptable and ready. Everything happens within God's providence. There's nothing that I do. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Not famine, not persecution, not the sword. Only sin can separate us from the love of Christ. There's a strong-hearted freshness and a resilient joy. That Christ, whenever he took on the cross, did not do so sluggishly. But as in the letter of Hebrews, he took on the cross for the hope that was to come. And so we ask that in receiving the pledge of hope, the pledge of eternal life, in reception of the Eucharist, that the Lord can strengthen our hope, that he can break us out from the bonds of the superficial cult of youthfulness, break us from the bonds of the seedy and sluggishness, and being workaholics that we can labor for the kingdom and so await him on the last day.